Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Can we just congratulate our families that dedicated their children this morning? It's just, it's so good thinking about a year ago, I was getting ready to preach on this same weekend, and that's when we shut everything down. And I had to preach to an empty room, and it was weird. And just being here this morning, um, it's amazing, especially to be able to do that and celebrate with our families. So if you guys don't know me, my name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Titus 1. We're going to be starting a new series. I preached this last night, and I opened up talking about the weather and how it's changing and how, hey, it's, it's sunny out, but it's still 40 degrees. So those of you that are jumping the gun and putting on shorts and wearing your Birkenstocks, like we're not there yet. And I, I always receive like criticism and like input on my sermons. And I got this uh, prayer request after my sermon. And uh, this is from, from Craig. So I'm not going to throw his last name out there, but his, his first name is Craig. And he says, Todd Lane, shorts on Sunday. So wherever you're at, Todd, Todd you're, uh, you're being called out this morning. So that was, that was helpful for my sermon. Um, but we're starting the series uh, in Titus. It's called A Blueprint for a Healthy Church. And in going into this next season with our church and continuing to build upon the foundation that we've set, we're going to be looking at this church in Crete, uh, Titus. It's a short epistle. It was written by Paul between 62 and 64 AD. It was in between Paul's first and second imprisonments right before he was martyred in Rome. Paul's writing to this young pastor named Titus. He's urging him to lead his people deeper into the gospel. And what Paul is concerned about and what he's seeing in Crete is this corrupting influence of false teachers. There is a very unhealthy church that's being developed. So Crete, at face value, um, it looks like an amazing place. You see the blue water, you see the port there, you see the island. It looks like somewhere we would want to go for vacation, somewhere we would want to hang out. Like if I were uh, the pastor and planting a church there, I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. I've hit the lottery. Um, something very different is going on. The church in Crete, it's plagued by two problems, licentiousness and legalism. Licentiousness is essentially this reckless, rule-free, do-whatever-you-want. What are the passions of your flesh? What are, what are the lusts that you feel? Go after those things, chase after those things. That will bring you hope. That will bring you joy. And legalism, the, the opposite, strict, dry living, lots of rules, lots of regulations. Um, the first takes advantage of the grace of God, and the, the second, legalism, uh, seeks to earn the grace of God. Though they're very different in their expressions, Paul is going to show us that both licentiousness and legalism, they have the same root. They both come from the same place in our hearts, uh, that hope in the flesh for personal fulfillment. The licentious person, they, they feed on the lust of the flesh, while the legalist person, they, they feed on the pride of their flesh. And whatever camp we find ourselves in this morning, uh, what we need to understand, uh, the dangers of this is both paths, they result in spiritual, spiritual fatigue, strife, sin, and eventually a hatred for God. So Paul's goal, the reason why he's writing this letter, the, the blueprint he's proposing, the foundation that he's saying, Titus, this is what you need to uh, set as the foundation, uh, is the gospel, that the gospel is the only thing that's going to give hope, 
uh, love, security, joy, everything that the human heart craves and desires. The gospel frees us from captivity of lust of the flesh and this need to exalt ourselves. Um, the overarching problem in Crete is a loss of order. There, there's no order. It's pure chaos. We see it in their government. It trickles down to their church, and that eventually is getting in their families. We're going to read that entire families are being overturned. Entire families are turning against each other, and this is because of a loss of order. Our God from creation, starting in creation throughout the entirety of Scripture, is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. We see this in, in the, uh, the creation account, starting in creation, moving into the flood. Look at Genesis 1.31. It says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He sees everything that he made. Over seven days, creates everything, plants Adam in the garden, gives him a wife, Eve. Everything is very good because it's going exactly on how God's order intended. A few chapters later, after sin enters the garden, after they disobey God, after they step out of God or God's order, trying to pursue their own order, what happens? Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's interesting because if anybody's been through um, biblical counseling or premarriage counseling, we talk about rules of communication found in Ephesians. And the first rule is be honest. And in being honest, we say, hey, eliminate 100% words. Any, any 100% word you have in your vocabulary, take that out. Always, never. You always do this. You never do this. The reason why we do that is to like make that person feel worse about themselves, feel bad about themselves. Well, what God says right here is that every intention and thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And we know that God never lies. And what he's saying here is true because we've strained away from God's order. We make our own order and that results in chaos. After the flood with Noah going to the Tower of Babel, Genesis 9, this is the Lord speaking to Noah after the flood. He says this, that I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God, he sees chaos, he sees what's happening, he says, okay, I'm going to reestablish order. So he talks with Noah, this is how things are going to be, I'm never going to do this again, but this is how you have to live. In our, in our flesh, naturally, we go towards chaos, we break out of God's order, and what happens? Again, a couple of chapters later, Genesis 11, says, and they said, Man said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building that city. This process is repeated over and over and over again, from order to chaos, from order to chaos. Uh, think about times in our lives where we've seen this. Uh, my wife, Stephanie, and I, we both do a lot of marriage counseling. And uh, when people come in, we're getting their life story. We're hearing about what's going on in their lives. There are usually two problems uh, that arise, two issues in their lives that, that are kind of off. Any guess what they will be? Sex and money. Sex and money. Because God has very, very specific instructions, very specific, specific designs, a specific order on how sex is to be in marriage. It's a gift from the Lord. It's specific to marriage. But, but very often in the lust of our flesh, we, we feel this pull, we feel this temptation, we give into that, we step outside of God's order, and then we reap the, the 
benefits of that, the opposite benefits of that in our marriage. Same thing with money, right? We know that money is not ours. It's a gift from the Lord. We're called to be stewards. We're called to be shepherds. But, but we think of our money as an accumulation of our success so I can buy what I want and I can accumulate debt. As long as I can make the payments, I'm justifying it. It's outside of God's order. It results in chaos. So thinking about that, thinking about the blueprint of a healthy church, thinking about how God has a perfect design, a perfect order, and stepping outside of that order always results in chaos. Here's our big idea. When order is lost, so is the gospel. When order is lost, so is the gospel. So Paul, in retaining order, passing down this blueprint to Titus, he writes this letter, starts in verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So in starting off and laying this foundation, providing this blueprint, this blueprint Paul is saying doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Paul will often use the word servant to describe himself. He starts off this letter this way, uh, calling himself Paul a servant of God. Uh, we, we see this throughout his epistles. Uh, Romans 1.1 1, 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Philippians 1.1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And what Paul is saying simply is he's saying, this is who I am, therefore this is what I must believe. That if I am a servant of God, if I am entrusted with the gospel, this is who I am, therefore doctrine matters. Doctrine is important. I need to hold fast, I need to stay steady in these things. Life must conform to doctrine. The message is the same for leaders and for servants, for parents and children, male and female, young and old. Grace should produce this godliness that Paul is talking about. When the message of the gospel becomes unglued from godliness, faith shatters. When the message of the gospel becomes unglued from godliness, when they become separated from each other, faith shatters. So no matter how commendable our intentions may be, the message of grace, apart from godliness, or a godly endeavor, whatever that may be, if that's apart from an understanding of grace, this destroys the hope that the gospel offers. And what is, what is hope? What is a biblical understanding of hope? It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just hoping for the best. Biblical hope is defined as a confidence that the things God has promised will occur. And we see this because God himself states here that God never lies. So again, before we press on the big idea, when order is lost, so is the gospel. When doctrine and theology becomes unimportant in the church, like what's happening here in Crete, it's no longer a church. The place no longer prioritizes the gospel. Verse 4, Paul continues, he says to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. 
I think that's hilarious. This is why I left you in Crete so that you can put what remained into order. It makes me think about um, like the one time a year where my wife leaves for a weekend. It's like that, that rarely ever happens. And dads, you can track with me. It's like, okay, our wives leave and we have our kids there and it's like chaos just ensues. And it's like, what is going on? I don't understand. Like she literally just left and kids are, they're running around naked. They're smearing stuff all over their walls. It's like, I, I don't know. How, and I'm here, I'm remained to put this into order. How am I going to do this? Um, Anybody ever, ever babysat and like, it, it just goes awful, right? And then the parents come home like, hey, how were they? Like, oh yeah, they were great. Like you just lie, like we've all been there. And then we go into our car and then we like scream into our steering wheel and we cry and we're like, I'm never doing that again. Anybody ever, ever been there? Was it for any of the pastor's kids? <laughs> no, no, don't answer, don't answer. <laughs> it's probably my kids. <laughs> it makes me think about when I was the middle school pastor. Um, we have Young Saints Conference coming up next week. If you're a high schooler, you're not plugged in for that, like get signed up for it. There's my promo for that. Um, but every year, middle school, we would do this retreat. We go to Camp Harvest and um, amazing time. It's like the pinnacle of our ministry year. And uh, I brought in this guy from Washington State and he's preaching this message. And it was the perfect message that the kids needed to hear. He was talking about growing up and how he was bullied and how, man, he never had friends. He never felt love, but then he experienced the gospel. He gave his life to Christ. He had that one true friend that he was always searching for and he found fulfillment and joy in that. And all the kids went forward and they got saved. I think there were some leaders there that got saved. I was crying, they were crying, everybody was crying. It was amazing. So I'm like, hey, let's go to small group. We're going to celebrate this. We're going to hang out. We're going to have fun tonight. And we're doing that. We're having fun. It's amazing. And then I see this leader, like that, that look in their face where something's wrong. And like, I, I see them and then they're walking towards me. I'm like, no, nah, I'm, I'm not doing this tonight. So they catch me like, okay, hey, we have a problem. Um, a, a group of students, they, they broke into the kitchen and they stole honey, they stole some sugar, then they broke into the bathroom and they smeared it all over everything and they went to different cabins and they were uh, flipping over like all the cots and pulling out everybody's clothes. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, who, who, who was this? Like, oh, um, the sixth grade girls. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> like... I think they're like freshmen now. They're probably here and embarrassed. I'm telling this story, but um, it was like in that moment, I felt like Elijah when he was being chased by Jezebel. I was like, man, and here I am all alone and they seek my life to take it away, you know? And <laughs> it was in that moment, there was chaos and I was there and I had to come up with a plan to set things back into order because if it was going to continue to go the way that it was, we got a like Lord of the Flies situation. It's not gonna be good. Sixth grade girls are running crazy in this camp. I had to restore order. This is a situation that Titus is dealing with. There's chaos because Crete had lost all sense of order and doctrine. So Paul is going to give instruction. He's going to give this blueprint on how to build a healthy church. He starts with this. He says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, the church in Crete at this point didn't have elders. Uh, that was a problem. So Paul is going to provide Titus a way in which he can send uh, overseers or elders, uh, pastors. This word is used interchangeably uh, that, that he can put them in place. And in verse six, he, he gives the outline. He says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who understand it. So biblical order, it ensures that godly leaders lead by example. Godly leaders lead by example. So an attempt to ensure that the gospel is going to be communicated, that the gospel is going to be furthered, godly leaders need to be set in place that we're going to lead by example. And the first thing that they're called to be is above reproach, above reproach. Uh, a definition for above reproach, because sometimes we read that and it's like, I, I don't, that sounds good. I have no idea what that means. It's the standards for Christian leadership strictly uh, that relates to one's behavior before others. Okay, so in the Greek, this, this phrase means simply not chargeable with some offense, not chargeable with some offense. And Paul uses above reproach to set the standards uh, for someone whom others have no obvious reason to accuse them for living a life that is inconsistent with the gospel, that is inconsistent with doctrine. When he uses above reproach here, he's setting a standard based upon what others in the church see and observe about that person in leadership and that person that is being considered for all of us, for above reproach. Uh, he says that there would be the husband of one wife, husband of one wife. So when Paul uh, wrote this, uh, he was not married. Uh, Titus, as far as we know, he was not married either, so he's not saying that marriage is a requirement. Uh, he's also not talking about polygamy, because in the time and place where Titus was ministering, that, that wasn't a thing. So it doesn't make sense to put that in here, that people did not have multiple wives in, in Crete. So what he's saying, the, the literal phrasing, it seems less concerned with one's marital history. And it's more concerned and more focused on whether the man being considered for office is perceived as living honestly, faithfully, and in devotion to his spouse. It says that his children are to be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So when talking about children, uh, how does this man, how does he manage his household? Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord. For this is right, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In 1 Timothy 3, it says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And again, we're going towards order. We're looking at this blueprint Parents and leaders are responsible for the proper nurture and upbringing of their children. A person is not simply ready for others' spiritual well-being if he cannot manage his own household well. While these standards, they are requirements for overseers and pastors and, and elders. They are all things that we as the church, that, that us as a community, us as a family need to strive for and, and hold ourselves account accountable to and hold each other accountable to. So husbands and wives, how, how, are, we, how are we doing this? If we have outsiders looking in and looking at our marriage relationship and our, our marriage, the, the purpose of it is oneness. The purpose of it is to be a walking gospel. We talk about husbands, that we are to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for it. 
wives? How, how are we reciprocating that love? How are we setting the example? How are people looking at our marriage and saying, you know what, that is a God-honoring marriage. I want a marriage like that. Single people speaks to you as well. How, how are we leading in the community? How are we leading our friends that are watching us? Romans 12, this is one of my favorite verses, 12, 11, says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent, serve the Lord. Don't be slothful in, in zeal, be fervent, serve the Lord. Do you know what that word fervent means? It's passionate, it's white hot, it's glowing, it's attractive, that we can walk into a room and, and based on uh, how our mood and how we feel, we can be a thermostat or we can be a thermometer. Uh, and it's like, do we walk in? It's like, okay, um, the, the temperature is kind of down. I'm just going to conform to what's going on, right? I'm going to be that thermometer in the room. Or are we going to be a thermostat? Are we going to turn it up? Are we going to say, hey, I'm here. I love Jesus. This is how I'm living my life. That my life, this is the things that I'm sticking to. This is the doctrine that I believe. Are we the thermostat? Are we the thermometer? Parents, our children are watching us. Are we leading by example? When we fight... Um, because we do, do we just do that in front of our kids? Do we just sit there? Do we just yell at each other back and forth? Do I undercut my wife? Uh, because I'm training my sons. I have two boys. I'm training them in how they are going to act with their future spouse. How, how is our communication? How are we showing our affection and our love to one another? I know people that, that have never seen their parents hug each other. They've never seen their parents hold hands. And it's like, I, somehow I'm here. I don't know how it happened, but I was born somehow. It's like, any opportunity I can get to hug my wife, to hold her hand, to tell her I love her. I want to do that in front of my children because they're learning, they're watching me. And here's the thing is that we are preparing the next generation of our church. How are we doing? And talking about the law in the Old Testament, talking about how to raise our kids. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7 says this, that you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit on your house or sit in your house Sit on your house, that'd be weird. Sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. These things matter. People are watching. How are we conducting ourselves? How are we preparing the next generation of the church? The third thing, in seeking to provide order, we must be warned that damaged doctrine damages people. Damaged doctrine damages people. Verse 10 again. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So those of the circumcision party, those are former Jews that are now Christians, and they're bringing in this legalism and this gospel plus mentality that we're going to talk about later. And he's going to go on to say that they need to be silenced. Verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. The unsound teaching of this circumcision party, of the people that are leading this church currently, it's literally causing families to overturn. It's causing families to turn against each other because the doctrine is damaged. The doctrine is not consistent with the gospel. Man, I've seen this in this season. I've seen this, that we're seeking after what we want in this season. We're seeking after false doctrine and it, it's tearing families apart. And these false teachers, this false doctrine, Paul uses very strong language here that they need to be silenced. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So Paul is quoting the 6th century BC philosopher Epimenides. And Epimenides, he's, he's famous for the liar's paradox. Um, I, I spent like 
way too much time trying to figure out what the heck he's saying here. And this is what I got, so track with me. It says, in philosophy and logic, the classical liar's paradox or anatomy of a liar is a statement of a liar that he or she is lying. For instance, declaring that I am lying, if the liar is indeed lying, then the liar is telling the truth, which means that the liar just lied. Whoa, okay. Like, what, what do I do with that? And here's the thing. We, looking at this, uh, the conclusion that I came to, what, what this man is saying, it's not socially acceptable. It's not socially acceptable to be a liar or to be evil or to be lazy. Um, but it's also not socially acceptable to stereotype people groups. And to say, this is exactly how they are because they are this way, because they are this type of person. And we stereotype, like, that's not socially acceptable either. Ultimately, what Paul is going to show here is that he's not afraid to say the hard thing. He's not afraid to speak truth into a situation. Because it says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or the commands of people to turn away from the truth. The purpose of the sharp rebuke, the purpose in quoting this, immediately followed up in context with, with so that they may be sound in faith, that that is the reason that they may be self-aware and they might be ready to change by hearing the truth. So all this points to the importance of having order in our lives and I maintain order in my life by maintaining or eliminating a gospel plus mentality. I must eliminate this gospel plus mentality. Verse 10 again, for there, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These are these former Jews that, that have showed up, they're teaching, but they're trying to stick to uh, that Jesus saves you, but it's, it's plus special religious knowledge or diets or rites or practices and all these things, they qualify you for heaven. It's not just Jesus' finished work on the cross, it, it's that plus something else. This deceives people into thinking that their heavenly status is determined by human accomplishments. So how do we define faith and grace? Some of us believe that we need to do something to look a certain way in order to be loved by God. Um, again, something very, very common. My, my wife and I, we vacationed down to Orlando like mid-pandemic, and we went to Universal Studios, we went to Disney. It was, it was very strange. It was very bizarre. Um, everything was just empty. And one morning, we're like, okay, let's go get breakfast. So we go to like a, uh, like a Dunkin' Donuts, and we walk in, and the guy was like surprised to see us. He's like, whoa, well, people are here. This is amazing. So that turned into like a half an hour conversation with me and the guy that hasn't seen another human in forever. So we're talking, and he's excited. And then it got to the point where it's like the what do you do question came up, you know? Like, what, what do you do for a living? And um, vacation, Nate. I, I don't wear sleeves. I, you know, so like I'm covered in tattoos and... This guy was like very loose with his language. He was talking to me like, you know, just not a normal conversation I would have. I was like, hey, okay, whatever. So that question came up, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor up in Michigan. He's like, they let you do that? And I'm like, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not on work release. Like, yeah, they, <laughs> they let me do that. It's amazing, awesome. I have a job as a pastor, cool. But it's like in that moment, this man that, you know, turned to, oh, yeah, I grew up going to church and uh, this and that, and the, the, the temperature, the conversation changed. But he wasn't concerned in my testimony. He was not concerned in what the Lord has done in my life. He was more concerned on the rules and trying to convince me that I was somehow breaking them by having tattoos. This gospel plus 
mentality showed itself. This is also known as the religion gospel. It teaches that we're saved by our works. If you do this and don't do that, then Jesus will love you. But you have to be good, or the moment you mess up, you're done. The moment you mess up, it's over. We have to dress a certain way, look a certain way, read a certain translation, abstain from culture totally, or we could be at risk of losing our salvation. So how does that work with works? How does that work? Faith and works. James 2, 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And we wrestle with this. We try to justify the works that we are doing. A lot of us don't understand, and we don't accept the grace of God in our lives. Because, man, it can't be that simple. See, we're saved by grace for good works. It's an outflowing of what Jesus has done in our lives. So talking about these false, these false teachers, looking at this false doctrine, verse 11 says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to treat to teach. One of them, a Cretan, uh, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And the second way that I maintain order in my life is by silencing false teachers. Silencing false teachers. Paul is literally giving us permission to, like, take part and cancel culture. Like, false teacher, cancel them. False doctrine, cancel them. See, false teachers are as relevant today as they were here when, when Paul is discussing this in Scripture. Look at uh, 2 Timothy 4. It says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And here's the thing. If we dig hard enough, if we look hard enough, if we stand YouTube long enough, we will find these pastors, we will find these preachers that will teach us exactly what we want to hear, but not what we need to hear. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that I'm a sinner saved by grace. The gospel is even while I'm dead in my trespasses, even while I'm an enemy of God, that I don't have to clean myself up, that Jesus left his throne in heaven, came down to earth, lived a perfect, sinless life for me, a life that I couldn't live. He went to a cross, took the wrath of God all at one time for me. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. And now me, I accept Christ with my mouth. I believe in him with my heart. I accept him as my savior. I submit myself to the rule and the reign of him as my Lord. That is the gospel. But a lot of us, we believe these false gospels and these false gospels must be silenced. So I put together a list of some of these gospels that we, that we hear um, that we should be silencing around us. First one is the religion gospel. This is the one we already talked about. That's about religion. It's about coming to church. It's about doing the right thing. Hey, I come. I come every weekend. I take notes. I take notes on the little card thing, and then I, I've actually, I haven't lost them in my car. I still have all of them together from this whole year. It's amazing. I'm doing good. That's not what saves us. What about the moralism gospel? The point of the gospel is to make us good people. We're saved just by being good, decent, moral people. And this isn't very far off. A lot of us, um, we believe this. Um, when I'm sitting down with somebody in pre-marriage counseling or hearing their life story, and it's like, okay, um, say you were to die today, and you're standing before the Lord, and that way's the heaven, this way's the hell. Okay, you're standing before the Lord. You're giving an account. How do you know that you're going to heaven? What, what's your answer? Well, you know, I tried to do good things. I tithed, and I was nice to the people around me, and generally, I think, like, I'm a pretty good person. That, that's not the gospel. That's not good enough. It doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with the finished work of Jesus and what he did. 
What about the prosperity gospel? We are saved to be rich, healthy, happy, and whole. There are certain pastors that say God wants you to be rich. You should partner with him by faith and with your money to pursue riches. God wants you to be rich, healthy, happy, and whole. It's not the gospel. 1 Timothy 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we were brought, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. John Piper says this, the very thing that leads people into suicidal piercings of pangs, namely the desire to be rich, it's nurtured, it's captivated or cultivated by the prosperity preachers, that they are encouraging that suicidal behavior that happens. The prosperity gospel is not the gospel. If it were true, then, then how come when we get saved or when we get baptized, anytime we take a step to follow Jesus, we experience spiritual warfare? Like, I've experienced that. Man, I remember when I got baptized, and it was like everything inside of me, the anxiety, the doubt, the fear, everything was trying to convince me not to do this. I remember when I got saved and spiritual warfare comes up. It's like, why does that happen? Prosperity gospel is a false gospel. What about the self-help gospel? Jesus died for you so that you could be the best version of yourself. You're not really a sinner. You just need a little help. And here's the thing, if we believe that, and if we want that, um, it's going to be very difficult to get to that place in this church, because our job is to preach Christ and to preach him crucified, to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. I don't really care about people to be in the, the best version of themselves. That's not the goal. The goal is to be more and more like Jesus. And my goal is for you to see him and to strive to be like him. That's the progress of progressive sanctification. It's daily dying to ourselves to be more and more like Christ. Self-help gospel is also false. We don't want you to be a better version of yourself. We want you to be more like Jesus. Signs and wonders gospel. Do I believe in, believe in signs? Yes. Do I believe in wonders? Yes, I do. But here's the problem. This teaches that if you were truly saved, if you actually knew Jesus, you'd see miracles. And if you had enough faith, you can be healed or you can heal others. The danger here is seeking the, the gift and not the giver. Um, I had an interesting interaction with uh, somebody that was involved with Christian science. And they're a leader in the Christian science church, and they believe uh, this doctrine and this theology. And we're talking, and I uh, got to talking about health. And I was like, hey, I'm, uh, I'm type 1 diabetic. Don't like being diabetic. It's the worst. I have to give myself shots. And Louis smiling back there because he, you feel me on this. Um, it, it is the worst. I don't like it. So this person, and as we were talking about, they're just like, I, I, I know what the problem is. You just don't have enough faith. If you, if you had more faith, if you were truly saved, if you actually loved the Lord, man, you would be healed. I can help you with that. How is that encouraging? It doesn't make sense. That is not the gospel. What about the American gospel? The American gospel. America is not mentioned in the Bible. It's not. Kingdom of God is, though. We need to strive to be heaven's citizens before we are American citizens. And any gospel that we choose to believe that is true here in the States 
but, but is not true in China or Russia or any other place on the planet. It's not a true gospel. We can't sit here and say, hey, if, if you don't vote with this party, you don't love Jesus because we understand that there are some countries on the planet that they just can't vote. So if we're pushing that here and if we're saying that this is the way to follow Jesus, but that's not possible somewhere else, that is not the gospel. That's a false gospel that needs to be silenced, strongly rebuked. But this isn't where it ends. It doesn't just end with the rebuke. Um, if we find ourselves following one of these gospels or rebuking false preachers, we are always called to point back to Jesus, always. It's not pointing back to ourselves. It's not pointing to something different. We're always called to point back to Jesus. So look at verse 13 again. It says, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith. That is the purpose for the rebuke. That is why we call people out. That is why we stick to doctrine and why doctrine matters. We always point back to Jesus. We get their attention to draw them in. The hard work in the rebuke is not simply getting the courage to call somebody out. That's not the hard work. The hard work is desiring them and involves taking them to God's own words, thoughts, and desires in the Bible in order to have their words, thoughts, and desires shaped by his. The voice that you're giving to your brother or your sister should not be yours. It should be God's. I remember when um, I faced like the very strong rebuke in my life. And I had just come, started coming to the church. I was confronted with the gospel. And I was, I was excited. I wasn't saved yet, but I was moving towards that. And um, you guys remember the passage that Ryan taught a couple weeks ago on forgiveness? that being a Christian and forgiveness, they cannot be separated. Um, I had something exposed in my heart that I was really, really struggling with that I haven't uh, given forgiveness in a certain area. And when I was uh, in Afghanistan, um, I, I was a Marine, I was deployed to Afghanistan for, for a while. And while I was there, we went through this uh, transition period where we were partnering with the Afghan National Army. So these Afghan soldiers, they would stand post with us. We would patrol with them. We, we wanted them to like take over their own country because we didn't want to be there like forever. So that, that was the goal. That was the purpose. And one night, uh, one of my really good friends was standing post with this Afghan soldier um, who wound up actually being paid by the Taliban. So in the middle of the night, um, gunshot, boom. This Afghan soldier shot my friend in the head jumped the post, was gone, never saw him again. In that moment, anger, hatred, rage manifested in my soul. I wanted nothing more than to track this guy down and give him what he deserved. Makes sense, right? Makes sense. This guy killed my friend. Going to small group, getting plugged in. I'm getting excited about the gospel. The topic of forgiveness comes up. The parable of the unforgiving servant. Um, pastor Eric, is the lead, lead pastor in, in Fremont, asked the question, who's the guy choking somebody in the alley right now? I was like, yeah, that's me. That's definitely me. I, I told him the entire story. I was like, nope, that, I'm sticking to this. You're not changing my mind. It's like, okay, Nate, here, here's what you're doing. You have this unforgiveness. You have this rage in your heart the rebuke came. He said, you're, you're holding on to that. You're looking at Jesus on the cross. You're looking at this. You're saying, you know what? I, I choose this. I see what you did. I see what you're doing there and I get it and I'm thankful for it. And I, I want forgiveness for myself and I want joy and contentment in my heart for myself. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing the beating. I'm seeing the, the crown of thorns on your head. Like I'm, I'm seeing you having the separation from God, the most terrifying thing that anybody here could ever experience. But I'm choosing this. 
said, Nate, that's not compatible with the gospel. It's impossible for you to be saved until you truly give forgiveness to this guy because you're holding on to this. That strong rebuke ended with him pointing me back to Christ, pointing me back to scripture and getting to a place in my heart where I'm like, man, if I were to see this guy that killed my friend face to face right now, what would I do? And that was hard. I had to reconcile that, but I ultimately had to get to a place where it's like, I choose to forgive him because our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of vengeance. And that's his. That's not mine. I'm not God. We always, in a strong rebuke, point back to Jesus. So what's that thing for us? It's that thing we're holding on to. We're looking at Jesus on the cross, and we're saying, no, I choose this. Take this as the rebuke right now. But also understand and hear this, how we point others to Jesus It matters in that moment. Doctrine matters in that moment. Godly leaders lead by example in that moment. Paul continues, verse 15. says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And here's what we need to understand in building this blueprint for a healthy church and living this out in our lives daily. The order of my life reflects my relationship with Jesus. The order of my life, it reflects my relationship with Jesus. That salvation isn't complete, which is accepting him as our savior. We need to live our lives with him as our Lord. That submitting ourselves to the rule and the reign of Christ in our lives, the order of our life, it should reflect our relationship with Jesus. We don't want to be these empty vessels like these philosophers, these preachers in Crete. So where's my my life walking in here today? We're a year out from the start of the pandemic, a year removed. Um, during this season, we, we've all experienced it ourselves or we've seen it in somebody else where there's been intense suffering, there's been loss, job loss, personal loss, family loss. Um, outside looking in, it's like, man, how are they holding it all together? I don't understand. I think about my, my mother-in-law um, been battling cancer. There's been trial after trial, um, it just feels like we just keep on running into these hurdles and these dead ends. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, man, how, how are you doing this? It's like, Nate, I know where I'm going. Look at the order of my life. Look at the priorities that I made, that Jesus is the thing I cling to. And the suffering of this present time, it's not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to me. That I have present problems, but man, I have this promised prize. And I've ordered my life on that. So when the hard times come, when I face these waves, I'm secure because I've ordered my life that way. Maybe we're walking in here today and it's the opposite. And it's overwhelming and it's crushing. Anxiety, fear, it's just wrecking us. Like, man, I don't don't know how I'm gonna get through this. I feel like I'm, I'm this far away from just losing it all. How are you ordering your life? Have you given your life to Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? Do you trust him? 
the people in here know um, that you're Christian? Do the people that you work with know that you love the Lord? Would they be shocked if you told them? Look at Ephesians. It says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put off the new self created after likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. John 1 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's very simple. And having a blueprint for a healthy church in ordering our lives in a way that's consistent with the gospel, we need to realize that God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. See this in creation and government and the church and marriage and our families. That true peace comes from living out and submitting to God's creative order in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Lord, I thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Um, and going through this text in Titus 1, looking at Crete, looking at a place that is in chaos, a place that is facing false teaching, false doctrine, false theology. Lord, I see a lot of similarities in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would not seek after those false gospels that we think are going to fulfill us, bring us hope, bring us joy, because they're not. Lord, I pray in, in studying this series and building the blueprints for a healthy church, that we realize doctrine matters, that godly leaders, everybody in this room, we are called to lead by example. Lord, I pray that this is convicting. Lord, I pray that there's an area of rebuke and ultimately it points back to you. The only thing that sustains us, the only thing that fills us is your finished work on the cross. Lord, I pray that's new, that's refreshing. It's encouraging to our souls. Lord, I thank you for your church. I pray that your hand continues to be on this place, that you sustain it, that you protect it, that you grow us in our relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.